Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com slash laser. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm Jim Margulis, and joining me today, February 19th, 2021, is a returning champion on the Sox Machine Podcast, Keith Law. You may know his work covering prospects in the MLB draft for The Athletic, Others of you may know him as the guy who hates White Sox prospects based on his rankings. But when you set aside rankings, numbers, orders, etc., I think you might find fewer bones to pick. So let's get right into it. Keith, thanks for joining us again on the Sox Machine podcast. Uh, Looking through your author page on The Athletic, it seems like you've been rather busy. Are things calming down for you? Uh, Yes, for about a week, I would say. And then it's really draft season. Uh, But with agreement... With the agreement of my editor, Emma Spann, I said, um, essentially, leave me alone for a couple of days. <laughs> I'd like to sleep. And then, of course, we had a snow day yesterday, so sleep was not happening. I got a little more sleep this morning because we had a two-hour delay. And like I never thought I would appreciate the two-hour delay so much as I do now because that extra – even if it's one extra hour of sleep in the morning, that goes a long way. Yeah, I can imagine. Right now we're working with a puppy right now, so basically if we can get ah. past 6 a.m., it's it's great. So <laughs> I can understand that. But uh, to, to get into your White Sox prospect list, and this is always a point of uh, contention, and uh, I imagine a lot of listeners would, my first question be, how dare you, <laughs> for various, uh, one reason or another. But well, I guess you know the, the top four are, are pretty traditional or pretty consensus, Andrew Vaughn, Michael Kopech, Nick Madrigal, and Garrett Crochet. And I guess we'll start from the top with Andrew Vaughn. It seems like, you know, for a righty-righty first baseman, he's always been ahead of, I guess, that 
that mold. Um, you know, nobody complained about him being a top five pick. Nobody's complained about him being a top 20 prospect just because his hit tool is so good. And the White Sox consider it so good that right now he seems to be, uh, if not the front runner, they at least have the inside track towards the DH spot on opening day or close to it. Do you think he's ready for that? I don't know about opening day. I would feel a lot better if we'd seen him last year. And I mean, obviously, this is the answer for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. This is the answer on so many players that we didn't get to see in any place last year. But thinking of him as a you know top three draft pick, what would that be, 20 months ago now, out of college, who was extremely polished at the plate, and where there wasn't a lot of physical projection remaining, you weren't waiting for power to show up. In a normal world where we'd had a full minor league season in 2020, I would say, yeah, that guy should be ready. Mm-hmm. That guy should absolutely be ready. But wasn't a normal world. He didn't get those reps last year. We just had a brief look at him the summer before where he showed all the patience but didn't show all the – power that we might have expected that we do eventually expect from him just gives me a little pause to say hey you know if he spends the first two months of the year in double or triple a is that the worst thing in the world probably not i mean i would rather vaughn go to either of those levels well i guess it's triple a right because uh double a starts a month later Mm -hmm. so if he goes to triple a on you know april 1st or whenever exactly they start the what's he goes there and mashes for a couple of weeks. Okay, great. Then then we just feel better. We all feel better about any decision to eventually call him up. Yeah, the alternate site uh, conversation is a little bit weird, especially like you know, for somebody like me who's an outsider. It kind of reminds me of the instructional league where a player either looks great or is working on something. You know, a player never looks terrible mm-hmm. or out of sync. It just uh, it, it's kind of a low pressure environment where players can stand out. I think there probably are some unique benefits for some players, but for somebody like Vaughn who uh, you know, needs reps against upper-level pitching who's trying to, or, or you know, the kind of pitching who's trying to embarrass him not wearing the same uniform. Mm-hmm. Like, how have you weighed that overall, uh, the alternate training site experience? I have spoken to, obviously spoke to people with all 30 teams uh, about their players. And in a typical year when assembling these rankings, I would also have gone to see a lot of players myself, and I would be talking to scouts who you know, try to see, find scouts who saw every organization, every prospect, I at least every prospect I have to write about on the top 100, and usually going pretty deep into specific organizations. We had virtually none of that this year, just guys who saw Instructs, and that was it. And the, w- nobody saw the alternate site except for the team's own executives. And I would get a lot of, oh, so-and-so hit 12 home runs for us at the alternate site. Uh, okay, I don't mm-hmm. really know what to do with that because it's like, when, you know, my friends Sean and Chris and I would play wiffle ball in the backyard 40 something years ago, <laughs> you know, we were, you know, there were, we'd get at bats every inning, right? Mm-hmm. It was just not the same. And as you said, like, nobody's tried to embarrass you that the, when I wrote one of the pieces I wrote about sort of life at the alternate site from the player development perspective, one of the things I asked was, do guys really pitch inside, right? No one's really pitching inside. Like, right. If you're, you know, your uh, I guess Garrett Crochet was at the alternate site briefly. Like I'm sure he wanted to show off, but he's not trying to come inside and risk breaking a teammate's hand. Mm-hmm. Right? That's just not a thing. And so, you know, and then you're a hitter, you can get a little bit more comfortable because this guy's not running 99 in on my hands, right? Maybe I can just creep up and cover the outside part of the plate a little bit. It's just different. It's it's good practice, but it's still just practice. So any of the stats 
that I heard from the alternate side. I was like, yeah, it's fine, but I'm not really going to take that that seriously. Now, where people could tell me, oh, hey, uh, you know, the Red Sox, Jaron Duran really changed his swing and he's got more leverage now and he's rotating more, his legs are more involved. And even I even saw a little bit of video that also confirmed that. Okay, I can work with something like that because it's tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is not now we'll have to see how that actually plays in games, but that's a real thing as opposed to, Oh, he looked really good. Okay. I'm sure he did. Mm-hmm. Right. But looked really good. Doesn't mean a whole lot until he looks really good against another team. Yeah. My, you know, just based on the looks I saw from his a ball, you know, experience, which I think is irrelevant at this point, uh, based on just being his first pro season and then a little bit in spring training and just kind of the knowledge of his abilities. It seems like he has the plate discipline, to not look outmatched or, or you know, I guess uh, above his uh, pay grade, um, you know, game to game. I think he'll look fine in the box game to game, but I just wonder if he'll be hitting in a lot of like defensive counts, 0-1, 0-2, just because of his play discipline being used against him against better pitching or not being able to square up the good pitches immediately. I think that's going to be the problem. You have any kind of, uh, you know, am I misguided on that? You're talking still about Vaughn, right? Yes. Yes, I agree. I think that's going to be an adjustment for him. I don't – when I saw him in college, I did not find him to be overly passive, but I think that's a fair concern about any player with his profile. You know, I think back to Jeremy Hermita, a prospect I generally liked quite mm-hmm. a bit, who just wouldn't stop taking pitches. He'd get into hitters' counts and then fail to capitalize. Now, I – like I said, when I saw Vaughn and obviously spoke to a lot of guys who saw Vaughn as an amateur, that was never raised as an issue. Okay. It was not that he was too passive or that he was he would get into 2-0 and 3-1 and then just take, um, you know, which can be a matter of sort of looking for the quote-unquote perfect pitch or it can be a matter of a guy who just doesn't want to swing the bat. I don't think either of those is true of Vaughn, but I will concede the point that we could find out that that's true as the mm-hmm. pitching gets better too. Do we find him taking you know, good pitchers pitches in the strike zone in situations where Vaughn probably needs to either swing or at least learn to spoil? That's possible. That is probably something we won't know. We haven't seen it yet, but that doesn't mean it couldn't become a factor as he continues to move up. So with, with Michael Kopech, the conversation is different because he didn't play at all last year. It's basically if he looks like he did before Tommy John surgery, he's fine, right? Yes, that's the hope. And obviously he's had some off-field challenges, and the hope is that he's in a better place to, to be able to come and you know sort of fully uh, embrace what the White Sox have planned for him, whatever the role might be for him. Maybe he does need to start out in the minors a little bit so they can sort of ease him back in as well. The hope is what you saw from him right before Tommy John was a guy who – it was top of the rotation stuff. No, it wasn't top of the rotation command just yet. But you know, with that, with with that kind of arsenal, he's going to miss a lot of bats, whatever the role. And if he, if that means he pitches more like a league average starter for now while he's working out some of the finer points, well, okay, well that's great. The White mm-hmm. Sox are in a position that that would still really help them. And then we get to Nick Madrigal, who I think is mm-hmm. maybe the most controversial uh, ranking or judgment of yours among White Sox fans. I think we talked about him last year, and I think the conversation hasn't changed much from last year. In which, you no, know, not it, unless he's gotten taller. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think he has. Uh, but like when it comes to like him in in the context of a top 100 list, I think the easiest way to sum it up is that he's going to have a better career than a lot of the guys on that list, but yes. not with an impact who's going to make you regret leaving him off. Is that uh, a way to sum it up? 
Yeah, I think that's a very nice way to sum it up. And, and I will point out, this was my ranking of him and evaluations of him now are consistent with what they were before the White Sox drafted him. Mm-hmm. So you know, if White Sox fans think this is something about the White Sox, and I know you don't, but some do, look back at what I said about him or Garrett Crochet, for that matter, before they were picked. This is all pretty consistent. Nick Madrigal's, he does not impact the ball. And we have some major league data right now that shows that he does not impact the ball. And it's very, very hard for me to see a scenario where that changes because of his size and because of his swing. You know, he's not just a guy where I think you could change his swing, improve his launch angle, and then suddenly he's getting to more power because I don't think he has the build or the strength for that. I do say he's a nice big leaguer for a long time. I think that's probably very true, and I think that's kind of in line with what you said. There are guys on my top 100 who will probably never see the majors. Some of them will get hurt, and that'll be the end of it. Nick Madrigal's already been in the majors, and he'll probably play another 10 years easily because and people will love him there are always coaches who love guys like that mm-hmm. so that is not it is not me saying that nick madrigal sucks or that he has zero <laughs> major league value it is simply saying that his ceiling is extremely limited um, and it is hard for me to envision a scenario where he becomes much better than what he is right now and garrett crochet is off also off your top 100 list and is that the same ceiling thing because you see him as reliever only yeah i think he's a reliever i thought he was a reliever going back to you know he barely pitched last spring. I mean, he did. He started last season on the injured list at Tennessee, and he ended it walking off the mound with an injury. Uh, although apparently he's fine. He's supposed to be good to go for spring training. But he's basically a one-pitch guy right now and has below-average command and control. And now I fully recognize that the White Sox have great history taking guys uh, who are more just throwers and developing them more. Like if Garrett Crochet shows up at some point this year and he's got a 50-55 slider uh, which is better than what he showed last year better than anything he showed in college would not shock me guy with that kind of arm speed and the white Sox history of working with guys uh that wouldn't shock me at all but the number of steps that he has to take to be able to be a starter for me is pretty significant and then there's also the health risk which is this is a guy who's had some health issues just in the very recent past and i think we need to be cognizant of that when thinking about reliever starter risk I think he's probably 80-20 chance to end up in the bullpen. And that again, he could still have good ma- real major league value. He could be a two-win reliever. Mm-hmm. He's throwing as hard as he's throwing, and the fastball seems to have good quality to it. He doesn't need a grade 60 or 70 slider to be an effective major league reliever. And if he ends up with one at some point, then he could be one of the best closers or high leverage relievers in all of baseball. But given the limited amount of time that relievers pitch in any given season and the fact that relievers tend to have really short peaks uh they can have long careers but they often have very short peaks the amount of total value that you can expect any any pitcher you say is going to be a reliever the amount of total value you should expect from him over his career is going to pale in comparison even next to a guy who you think is going to be a league average starter it's funny reading um you know, you're seeing, and I think you, you've mentioned that you don't look at other lists and such. White Sox fans and baseball fan, fans read all the lists, so you look at the top 100 and and you see, uh, you know, no magical, no crochet. But then you read the blurbs and like, oh, that makes sense. Or like, you know, there's no difference. <laughs> it's just more of a matter of I, I think just how you value low impact major leaguers or you know, I guess no loud tools versus or, or in, in the case of crochet being reliever only versus the way others do but it was kind of the same thing with your farm system ranking you rank the white Sox 22nd and i think for the last few years you've been lower on the system as a whole than other outlets you've ranked them like in the teens i would say like you know 13 14 15 whereas they were top five on other lists and now you know with prospects graduating and and a fall off after the top four 
that other outlets are joining you in the 20s and you rank them 22nd. But when, then when you read the blurb, you're actually kind of more optimistic than others when it comes to the younger talent. Uh, and, and, you know, it starts with the pitchers with, uh, you know, Matthew Thompson and Jared Kelly and Andrew Dahlquist and, and you know, down to Norhe Vera as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, are these all in the same, you know, if you had to rank them in tiers versus numbers, are they all in the same tier? Or would you say that Thompson, who topped your list among these pitchers, is more advanced than the others? Thompson apparently looked the best of all of them at instructs. And that's not a shock to me, even though I, I we I think we maybe even talked about this last year. When I saw Thompson in high school, it was probably the worst outing he'd ever had. Um, he was down to like 84, 86 in his last inning and he walked off the mound. He clearly it wasn't hurt, hurt, but something was clearly off. And then it did not help that his teammate then started the second game of the doubleheader, J.J. Goss, who's now in the race system, and punched out 15 in seven innings and mm. gave up one hit. You know, it's okay. I recognize Thompson's got a good arm and he's very athletic, but how could what how how am I supposed to like him better than the guy who also threw great and just had maybe the best game of his life? But having seen that and having spoken to guys who'd seen Thompson the previous summer too and said this guy's a clear first rounder. I was prepared to hear at some point, oh, Thompson's he's starting to make that leap. And it really sounds like he did do that in instructs last year. So, you know, it's the same the same caveat applies. We got to see this against real competition. But for a guy like Thompson, for any teenage pitcher who's got basically little to no pro experience, I weight that a little bit more heavily because we we're expecting it. We figured at some point some of that projection would start to come through. He'd throw a little harder or his breaking stuff would get a little bit better or he just generally, the whole package in his case, would start to look better. I did have one scout friend who saw him in instructs and was like, yeah, that guy could probably still be a reliever, but I I am nowhere close to that yet given his youth, the athleticism. Like That's a guy where you're willing to bet a little bit. I'm willing to bet a little bit on the upside. Guys are athletic like that Mm -hmm. and already show you some present skill. That's the guy who ends up exceeding expectations or he's in the it's the archetype of the guy who ends up exceeding expectations and then becomes you know an above average starter. And if he went out to low A this year and threw, you know, he's not going to throw a ton. He throws 90, 100 innings, but he punches out 110, 120 guys and is showing this kind of stuff. That's not going to surprise me at all. I can't rank him on that expectation, Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't shock me. He's the guy in the system. I think that that's the one you're you want to. You want to hang on the box scores for any particular prospect in the White Sox system this year? That's the guy. Yeah, Chris Getz said that he and, and and Kelly and Dahlquist could all start in low A, Kannapolis. And I think that's going to be – I'm curious what your thoughts are. Just I think the first month or two are going to have a whole bunch of assignments that sound ridiculous or overambitious. <laughs> but do you think it's going to balance itself out across the leagues because all these guys are trying to get back into actual game reps? Uh, Yes. Yes, I think that's going to happen where we're going to get a lot of really weird assignments, right? Because the way I, 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 many of your listeners may know this, right? but AAA starting at the beginning of April, AA, high A, low A start at the beginning of May. And then the complex leagues are probably, I assume, not going to start until somewhere in mid to late June. Uh, and so a lot of teams are probably going to try to send guys out to low A who might not otherwise be considered ready or wouldn't really normally have been in line to make that jump. But between the lack of regular short season leagues, between low A and the complex leagues, nobody playing last year, trying to start to build up some of these pitchers' innings, my guess is you'll see some assignments to low A that seem aggressive. And it has made me wonder, too, for 
as long as I've been doing this, there have been just sort of general guidelines about what's an age appropriate to a level. Mm-hmm. Maybe that kind of goes out the window now or, or just all changes. Maybe what we consider an appropriate age for age for low A, maybe it drops because more teams are assigning teenagers there because there's no place else to put them. It's that or extended spring. Well, if you've got a kid who's a little too good for extended spring or you just don't want to you know, a kid who's bored in extended spring and how could you possibly blame a kid for being bored in extended spring, especially if he was really good the previous summer in the complex league. Maybe more teams challenge those guys and say, hey, you know, hopefully the message to those kids is we're sending you to low A. You may fail and that's fine. Here are the three things we expect you to work on. Even if your results on the field aren't good, these are your developmental goals for the season or for the first half of the season. If you're making progress there, we're happy. Even if you have a six ERA, even if you're hitting 210, here are the things we need to see from you on your development. This is part of your development plan. We may see a lot more of that. In fact, I would I would say if I were working in player development, that's probably how I would approach it with the, with the Matt Thompsons. I, I don't care if you have a six ERA. Here are the things we're looking for. And just send him out to low A. Hopefully he really understands those goals, understands those expectations, and is able to focus – on that rather than maybe getting you know stressed out or upset at himself over poor results on the scoreboard. Yeah, when I was looking at those assignments and thinking they're ambitious, and then I saw that Getz also mentioned that guys like Brian Ramos and Bryce Bush and Benjamin Bailey, they can all end up in low A2 full season affiliates to start the year, and that also seems ambitious. But mm-hmm. you know, just it, it's it seems like across the league you're gonna have these uh you know just everybody being stretched out and so it could balance itself out over the course of you know, a couple months. And with, with, uh, you know, Ramos and Rodriguez and Bailey, you kind of like rank them in the middle in the teens. Uh, mm-hmm. this seems like to be the most, uh, encouraging talent the White Sox have had at those levels at the, at the DSL in complex ball among guys who are still, you know, 18, 19 years old, who don't have like that critical hyper aggression problem. That's characteristic of White Sox prospects, or, you know, don't have a position. These guys actually seem somewhat well-rounded. Yes, I think there are two th- the two areas where the White Sox, uh, you know, these aren't your father's White Sox in terms of how they're approaching some of the talent, some of the draft, drafting te- teenage talent and what they seem to be doing on the international side. You know, I kind of commented a little bit in my chat on you know, of the fan bases that seemed most dismayed by my form system rankings. Three of them uh, were fans of teams, the White Sox, Detroit and Baltimore that had not been very good in the international free agency mm-hmm. side. They just had not found a lot of talent. I'm not talking about Luis Robert. He's a different, he's a totally different uh, category. I'm talking about the 16 year olds from the Dominican, Venezuela, et cetera. And the White Sox just haven't had a lot of luck there at all. And they have, I don't think they've invested as much there necessarily. It seems like that's changing. I hope that's changing. I just don't think you can ignore that side of the business. It's what 30 to 40% of big leaguers. Mm-hmm. You can't just throw away that as as a, an area of talent acquisition. And of those three teams I just mentioned as well, I think the White Sox are the furthest along to improving their efforts in that area, and they're showing some early signs of positive results. So, yeah, despite I'm glad you see this because that is that is also how I feel about the White Sox system. Yes, right now if I add up, so to speak, the talent in the system, they're below the midpoint. However, there's a lot more – younger talent in this system than there's been in quite some time it's it's fewer of the the top 20 is no longer so populated by college drafts who might get up and be a bench piece or a middle reliever or something and and not maybe not even that there are some guys now who could also turn out to be not big leaguers but who have 
quite a bit more upside because they're willing to take some more risks now on these on teenage talent, teenage players, whether through the draft or through the international market. And I'm, I'm very much in favor of that. I'll be back with more from Keith Law after this quick break. When you rely on the Internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on Internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. You left uh, Yolki Cespedes off your top 20, and the evaluations of him have varied wildly. He was number one on MLB Pipeline's international prospect list. He was number 12 in Baseball America. I think he's just uh, kind of a man of mystery because of the, you know, both defection and COVID and changing his body and such. Is that just a, um, I don't know, evaluation to leave him off the list and waiting for more information? What I got on him wasn't great. Okay. It really wasn't great. And it was very, I, I, I love Jesse Sanchez. He's a good, he's a real friend. Uh, in addition to somebody whose work I respect tremendously. I was just, I was surprised to see him ranked where he was on the MLB list. And I did, I do see that because I don't really cover the international market too. I look at what Jesse says and I look at what Eric Longenhagen over at Fangraph says. Um, and of course I talk to my own, talk to scouts. I know who go down there, but I defer to those guys when it comes to things like rankings of international prospects. I didn't hear anything from scouts to say Cespedes, this Cespedes was that kind of prospect. And he didn't get top of the market money. They got good money, mm-hmm. but he not, did not get, you know, it's not Jason Dominguez money, for example, the guy who was number one in his international class a year previously. I am also fully open to anybody who comes through that market. We haven't seen any of them play yet. You know what? If, if Yoelke goes out and he's really good this year, great. He will show up on my list and I will gladly say I had him ranked too low. Yeah, it, it's a, uh, uh... You know, Marco Patti, he's described him as, you know, being closer to major league ready, at least high minors ready. But, you know, Marco Patti, when he talks about prospects, I, I, I don't know if this is characteristic of all international directors, but he tends <laughs> to talk about what a player can do and not what they can't do or struggle at. So sure. you always hear the, the rosiest possible um, explanation. But if Cespedes isn't high minors ready, there seems to be a gap between guys who are going to graduate and guys who are going to start in low A. Is there anybody in that middle ground you see perhaps being able to make an impact between those waves to bridge that gap any? Uh, that's a good question. I would say, you know, Jake Berger gets forgotten um, because he hasn't played in forever. Mm-hmm. But and just given his age and where he is physically, I think he could be the guy who gets there fairly quickly. Um, and I give him a lot of credit for going out playing in that collegiate summer league last summer. A handful of guys did that across baseball. I mean, to me, it seems like it just it, it, an incredible sign of a player's commitment to mm-hmm. just getting better or simply not losing skills. Or some of them were probably just going crazy around the house and just saying, I want to play, uh, which I also fully understand. But he seems like one guy where I'm not sure exactly what his position is going to be. I think we still have to see how well he moves around after all the leg injuries. But could he get there really fast? Could we end up at the end of this year and suddenly Burgers getting a cup of coffee in the big leagues? I mean, I really hope so for his sake, but also it sounds like it. 
And this was a guy who always hit the ball hard. So it's just, hey, he looked really good at the alternate site last year, et cetera. Well, he looked really good before he got hurt too. So that's not all that implausible. Mm-hmm. See, he's the one guy really here who jumps out as someone who I think could could move a little faster maybe than we expect because we've barely seen him. Um, and the other guy I would highlight, I've always been a little bit more of a Luis Gonzalez fan than I think maybe his performance would imply. And he does, you know, it, he's... I talked to Chris Getz and other people who saw him and in, in, uh, who've seen him over the last year and a half. He's made some mechanical changes to try to get back to just middle of the field, gap to gap, line drives. You're not a big power guy. You should not be trying to put 20 balls in the seats. It's just not who you are. I don't really know that he's a regular. He'd have to get his on-base percentage up to get to that point. But I think if he is that contact guy, let the speed play. You can definitely play center. He could be a, a, a really good fourth outfielder. And who can? Somebody gets hurt in the big leagues. Robert goes on the DL for three weeks. Could Gonzalez be your regular out there for a couple of weeks and not hurt you? Yeah, I think that's the type of player he is. And he's really close to ready. And, you know, that's the White Sox Major League roster is really good. They may be the best team in the division. So for them right now, what they need most out of the farm system, I would say, is just players who can fill in some of the gaps when there's an injury or be a bench piece. And then maybe at some point they get to July and they're looking for I don't know I don't know what they would actually need. Some a need emerges in the first couple of months. You know, if Luis Gonzalez shows a little bit of that progress, and the White Sox say, well, we don't have a ton of need for him. He's never going to be a regular for us. But maybe some other team says, yeah, we'll take that guy as a cheap regular for three years. He can create some more trade value for them because we we do see teams trade for the 17 and 18 year olds now, but often those deals also include one or two guys from the high minors or even the the the. Uh, pre-arbitration players in the big leagues. You do need some of those guys if you want to be able to trade prospects for major league help. Yeah, Jonathan and Steve are also in that burger neighborhood. And it seems like for uh, basically the the looks that we had in 2019 where he was topping out 96 with a good curveball that tunneled well with it. And then last year he was sitting 92-ish and relying more on junk ball or at least secondary stuff that he couldn't quite locate at the major league level. Which guy do you think he will be in 2021? Yeah, and he was the – I mean I went – If you, this is not a secret. If you just look at where his stuff was, like where in the zone it was, mm-hmm. there was a lot of middle-middle. Yeah. And that's – and it shocked me because he's not that guy, right? He's not a – you know, if you told me Crochet, who just throws really hard, that that was him in the big leagues, I'd say, okay, well, that's not shocking, right? This is a guy who's mean – trick on the mound, so to speak, is to throw hard. Uh, and it works. But Stever has never been that type of guy, and he doesn't have that kind of stuff. So I don't know what that was. And I'm inclined to forgive anybody last year who came up and struggled right out of the shoot. There were a lot of guys. You look at just stay in the division. Look at Casey Mize, for example. Casey Mize is a lot better than a here's another six ERA guy. He's a lot better than that. I think he's going to be a lot better than that going forward. But it was such a weird year for all these kids mm-hmm. that I'm not going to overreact to anything. I would really like to see Stever hitting like uh, hitting 94 more regularly, but also working more to the corners of the zone. Just anywhere out of mid, right? If you think of the zone as a three by three grid, mm-hmm. and number five is right there, middle middle. So Jonathan, I don't want you ever to throw middle, middle. <laughs> like right. Just don't throw a pitch middle middle like all year. Can we just work on that? I think if he were to make that change and get back to the velocity from 19, he's a better pitcher. Right there, he becomes at least a fifth starter for them. And I'm going to just be on the basis of nothing else other than 2020 sucked, and I'm glad it's over. Mm -hmm. And so let's just assume everyone's going to be back to normal. I'm going to say I think Stever gets back to 2019, and I hope I'm right. 
And now a few questions from our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for supporting us. Uh, we got a question from Lewis who asked, uh, you seem to be ahead of the consensus when it came to Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, and uh, <laughs> hope you get a cut of that. Uh, <laughs> what what struck out to you with him and who can you see being a guy who works his way up to being a top prospect with, or, with the White Sox and another organization from the international ranks, I presume? So um, honestly, I had Tatis show, Tatis show up on my prospect rankings uh, early because I think before he'd even played or he maybe played a week or two in the AZL, but I was already talking to guys who'd seen him in extended and seen him in that first week in the AZL who were saying, who the hell is this guy? You know, where, you know, not that he was a nobody, but he was a sub million dollar guy in the international market. And obviously guys come from that dollar figure and eventually become stars, but it was sort of right out of the shoot. He was 17. So this guy's kind of doing everything. He's ridiculously athletic and he has actions and he seems to have an idea at the plate. I didn't even realize he was going to have the power that he had. Uh, Certainly not at that point. But when all of these people are just raving about this kid right out of the shoot and it's consensus from not just from Padres people who were all kind of like we got away with something here, which, okay, I guess they did. But Mm -hmm. folks from other teams, too, were also saying the same thing. Mm. Okay, I need to be on this. I need to make sure that. And that many people are kind of telling you the same thing. And I you know, got some video from one of them and made sure I sort of could see what it was. I really prefer to see something where possible just so I feel like I feel for myself. I feel like I know more what I'm talking about. But that he had that combination of athleticism, of tools, and also some skill for his age. That he was a more advanced player at 17 than it seemed. I was very comfortable kind of jumping out. Um, I guess jumping ahead. I don't really think of it that way. Just but I – I want to be right. Ultimately, the goal is to be as accurate as possible with what are ultimately very subjective opinions and evaluations. And so, you know what? Everyone's telling me this guy is good. I see what I think. I think I see what they're talking about. I am comfortable making that jump for him um, on in the way in my evaluations of him. Um, if for folks who do subscribe to the Athletic, for every team, I list at least one prospect as a sleeper, which is my definition of a sleeper prospect is this guy's not top 100 right now. He may not even be particularly close to my top 100, but I think 12 months from now, he's the guy in this particular system who I think is most likely to make the jump into the top 100. For the White Sox, it's Thompson. I mean, I, I, they, listeners could probably guess that from how much I raved about him and what I've heard about him and the fact that I could see him so bad in high school and still say that about him should also, I think, probably give you a, a sense of just how much potential upside I think there is with him. Um, I would say, you know, also we talked a little bit about some of those, um, some of the guys from the Latin American market who are kind of bubbling under. Like he's a guy, it, there are other guys there who could potentially join him. But Thompson, we just know more. We've seen him a little bit more. I have a higher level of confidence in him. You know, I'll also mention with the Giants too, which is one of the teams that did not this is our, the Giants are a bit of a model for the White Sox. Giants were really not involved much in the international market for quite a long time, and about three years ago decided to ramp things up. Um, and then two years ago, I think it was maybe two and a half years ago, they went all in and they signed a whole slew of guys in the in one offseason, including Marco Luciano, who is their top Latin American prospect. He may be their top prospect uh, for a couple of years now. I would say he's actually number one on my list for them right now number 31 overall he'll probably be their top top prospect for the next two three years there's another guy in their system though luis matos an outfielder uh who was i think in the same class as luciano now he's 
you know, Luciano's a shortstop, middle of the field, going to have more value right out of the shoot. But Matos is another guy who's actually shown a pretty intriguing combination of power and contact for his age. If he'd gone out last year and just mashed in the in a short season league, he probably would have been on the top 100. He's somebody who I think he goes to low A this year, and as long as he keeps the contact rate up, he could absolutely make a big jump like that. We have a question from Ed Casey who asks, what have you liked best about MLB's one MLB plan uh, with the minor league, you know, realignment and schedules and, and, you know, with COVID complicating that, but uh, conversely, what about the plan? Would you do differently? Uh, the, is are you referring to just the whole realignment or the schedule? I don't I think, know. What the... I would say probably more the realignment given that the schedule okay. is COVID complicated. The realignment is yeah. probably more okay. big picture. Okay. Um, uh, what I don't like is the complete elimination of short season leagues between, uh, the complex leagues and, um, uh, at low A. I think there were two levels there beforehand. There was sort of the pioneer and appy leagues were the lower short season league. And then there was the New York Penn and the Northwest leagues, which were the higher, the more advanced short season leagues. Um, uh, I thought there was some redundancy there. I thought the Appalachian League was kind of terrible. I thought the Appy League and the Pioneer League were both not really good developmentally. I, I had a really hard time with the idea of taking kids from uh, Latin America who, you know, for whom at best English is second language. Many of them don't speak English. Uh, you're asking them to make this big, you know, geographic and cultural jump to come here and play in a short season league. And then you're sending them to Pulaski, Virginia. You're sending them to Helena, Montana. That's, okay, that's, that's why, not. That's why I recommend the movie Sugar. Right. Oh, that movie's amazing. And it is, you know, despite being fiction, it's pretty accurate to their experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think it would I think if more people saw that, they'd have a lot more empathy for some of these players, for how how hard it is, particularly for players coming from Spanish speaking countries um, where, you know, it's it is such a change for them across three or four different dimensions. So I hate that. Um, I did not really love the way, you know, I knew we knew this was coming, but Major League Baseball kind of just put its foot down. It's like this is it. We're doing this and you have basically no say and they use the COVID, the, the economic conditions created by COVID-19 to kind of uh, enforce their will. Turn the screws. The yeah, yeah, that's not great. I was really hoping we'd have more of a negotiated settlement and maybe that would save some of the short season leagues or something I've been saying for a year now and it's probably not any point saying it. But you know, some teams really wanted to keep the short season team between like I know the Rays folks loved having a level between the Gulf Coast League and low A. Well, why not give teams the option if you want to operate that, if you want to have a – if there were six teams that wanted to say to, – to keep affiliates in the New York Penn League, why not let them? Why are you preventing teams from employing more players and, and employing a few more people and just creating more development opportunities? Instead, what you're seeing now is a lot of teams are saying, well, we're just going to run two teams out of our complex. Well, that, nobody wants that. Mm -hmm. That's not good baseball. That's good for entry level, but there's no fans. You're playing at the complex. Um, you, you're not, those kids aren't, you know, they're playing, but they're not getting any of the other things that you typically get by going out and spending, say 10 weeks in, um, you know, the Northwest league or in the New York Penn league, living a little bit more on their own, playing in front of actual fans, you know, learning the schedule of, of, uh, the rhythm of actual minor league baseball, actual professional baseball played in real environments under lights. So I hate that we lose all of that. That said, there were a bunch of cities that just needed to not have affiliates anymore. Clinton and Hagerstown and 
or a couple of others that just nobody wanted to be there. Nobody wanted to be in Lancaster because it was an extreme hitters environment. And everyone said, not only was it hard to develop pitchers there, it was hard to develop hitters because hitters would get bad habits. And then you try to send them, I think they were Colorado was their last affiliation. You try to send them from Lancaster to Hartford, which was much more of a neutral environment. And guys would have a really hard time making that transition. So there's certain markets. I'm not sorry to see them go. And I completely understand major league teams saying we want more of our affiliates to be, you know, if possible within driving distance of our major league park. So we can send guys back and forth or send personnel back and forth, not just players, but coaches or front office executives completely understand that. So there's pros and cons to it. I think people who are painting this as just an, you know, uh, unmitigated disaster for baseball are not looking enough at the big picture and also maybe not recognizing some of these markets just didn't support their teams. And if you don't support a minor league team, I can't blame anyone for saying we don't want to pay to operate this minor league team in this particular market anymore. I just wish Major League Baseball had maybe been a little bit more open to negotiating this and coming up with a different settlement as opposed to basically Major League Baseball did what they wanted. This was what they wanted to do from the start and they got everything that they wanted. And finally, from our Patreon question, Steve Bennett asks, what's the best new-to-you game you've played during the pandemic? Ooh, that's an excellent question. Um, God, we've played a lot, too. Um, the game I said was number one of last year uh, when I reviewed board games of, over at Paste was called The Search for Planet X, which is like a mystery deduction game. And not only do I really like that kind of game, but um, – there aren't that many great games like that. It's kind of like a, a little bit of a logic puzzle for folks who love doing, you know, so the logic puzzles that you might find in I'm dating myself, but games magazine or get those at the airport. Right. And people do them on the plane. Well, I guess pre Sudoku, that was probably more popular, but it has a lot of that going on. Um, there's also a game from last year called Calico that I just got a couple of weeks ago. My daughter and I have played it a few times and I really like it because it's, very simple to learn. Um, it's just a tile placement game and you're trying to create certain patterns on your board, but the, and it's simple to learn and the turns are pretty quick, but it, there's a lot of thinking involved and there's a lot of decision-making and am I going to be able to get this particular tile to complete this pattern? Oh, what are the odds? Maybe I need to plan ahead in case I don't get that one. And so every time we've played it, we enjoy it, but there's sort of like the good frustration of, oh, I was so close to just finishing this and I would have gotten seven more points from doing that. I wish I'd seen the game sooner, honestly. It would have made my rankings for last year. Um, but it is uh, – it, it's really good. It looks really good. It plays um, – like I said, just it's so quick to learn. And I'm, I play more complex games. I play plenty of games that take you – a full play to really understand what's going on. But at the end of the day, when I'm, especially when I'm trying to recommend games to people, I like games that have really quick rule sets where you can just dive in and it's, hey, you'll learn it quickly. It'll take you a couple of plays to get good, but you'll the learning curve is pretty short and Calico is definitely one of those. And to wrap up, uh, thank you always for your time and it's always a great conversation and, and part of the conversation I like having with you is is book recommendations and uh, for Lent this year, I was trying to think of what to give up and then realize I've been giving up a ton of things for the last year and kind of getting tired of that. So I decided to <laughs> use it to form a good habit instead. So I'm getting back into, you know, book reading, uh, you basically devoting 20, making sure I de devote 20, 30 minutes a, a day to it. And so I'm, I'm wrapping up a novel and I'm looking for, you know, something next thing to read. Anything I should go with? 
fiction, nonfiction, non-baseball. Let's say non-baseball. Oh, yes, absolutely. I read very little baseball, so I'm with you on that. Have you read Piranesi, the new book by Susanna Clark who wrote um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell? I have not. Uh, It's excellent. Now, I love Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, but some people are intimidated by that book because it is – a thousand pages. Now, I would say it's the fastest thousand pages you'll ever read, but still, that's a big book. Piranesi is short of 300 pages, actually, and it has still has her gorgeous writing. Um, it's pretty separate. It is there's only a loose tie to the original books. You don't have to have read her first book to know what's going on. And I like the fact that it opens up with a real air of mystery about it, where you don't really know what's going on. She adequately answers it by the end of the book, but the way that she so she's not leaving you hanging necessarily, but the way that it comes about is really pretty clever. It It's very different. And I just, I adore her writing. I wish she's had health issues that have kept her from writing more. I hope that that's behind her enough that we get more, more books from her. Cause I could just read anything she puts out at this point. She's just, she writes beautifully. You can see a lot of influence from classics of Brit lit. And yet there's something a little whimsical because maybe because she's writing about magical worlds that I just find totally irresistible. All right. So can you just uh, repeat the in case people are listening to cars and can't rewind? <laughs> can you just repeat yeah. the uh, title and the title, author again? Sure. Yep. Yep. This is Susanna Clark. That's Clark with an E on the end. And the title is Piranesi. P-I-R-A-N-E-S-I. She's only written two books, two actual novels. I think she's got a short story collection. So if you go to the bookstore, look for the shortest of her books. That's the one I'm talking about. Great. Well, it's uh, one, Parnassus Books just opened here. Uh, ah, opened yes. Customers, so I'll be looking forward to actually. Uh, we love Parnassus. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so I think you're planning to go to Nashville, right, for that signing before everything went to crap. Yes. But uh, we had it scheduled in May. I don't know. I hope the world. My wife is vaccinated now. I'm hoping maybe in the next couple of months I'll be able to. And even if I just come to Parnassus Books just to shop, I would be happy. <laughs> Well, you know, who knows what the way scouting is going and Vanderbilt's under uh, a couple inches of ice and snow right now. So oh, who God. knows when that'll happen. <laughs> but, you know, if you make the uh, scouting trip around here, uh, oh, uh, maybe we can. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to actually uh, going to see some Vandy games. So maybe we'll cross paths either there at the bookstore and uh, actually meet in person for once. That would be fantastic. I will let you know. Great. Well, uh, thanks as always for your time and uh, uh, just enjoy the rest of your break. And then we'll see you uh, when we're trying to figure out who the White Sox are going to draft. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That's Keith Law. You can find his top 20 White Sox prospects list at The Athletic and his thoughts and writing on his myriad other interests through his Twitter account at Keith Law. That'll also do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Josh and I will be back on Monday to resume our regular weekly schedule. So now is a great time to subscribe, which you can do wherever you find podcasts. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, feel free to rate us and leave a review. If you'd like to support the site and show, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com slash SoxMachine. This week's episode includes three bonus questions for Keith from Sox Machine supporters and a few others I so artfully weaved into the discussion, so consider signing up today. Exclusive content is available starting at $2 a month. The Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. I'm Jim Margulis. Thanks for listening. Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. 
From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com slash laser. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.